Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Isn't there a little bit of uh, Bambi and Walt Disney, or for that matter, in, in everything you try to do? Well, I don't know. I never thought of myself that way. I mean, uh, I don't know who I'd be, Thumper or Flower or what, you know, but uh, but uh, I think the thing might be that I, I'm, I'm a lover of nature. In fact, I, I respect nature very much. And uh, I feel that... Uh, through watching, observing uh, the, the uh, habits of the creatures of nature, man could learn a lot. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lemon. We're exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical, and social context, where they come from, their impact, and how they sit with us now. In our previous episode, we looked at the little film that could, the modestly made but instantly beloved classic Dumbo. This week, we finally come to a film many, many years in the making, one that presented endless challenges, but is regarded by many as the apex of hand-drawn animation, Bambi. Each episode on Ink and Paint, I'm joined by a special guest, not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by Melbourne-based psychologist Chris Cheers. Before training as a psychologist, Chris worked for arts organisations across Australia, developing a rich understanding of the industry. This has led to Chris specialising in providing mental health support and workshops to clients in the arts, performance and creative industries, and has provided consultation with Melbourne Fringe Festival, Melbourne International Jazz Festival, the Arts Wellbeing Collective, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts, and various independent theatre productions and feature films. Chris is also an endorsed educational and developmental psychologist and has developed an expertise in supporting LGBTIQ plus clients across all ages. Chris, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So tell our listeners a bit more about your practice as a psychologist, particularly your interest in uh, consultation with the arts. That's a very specific area to be um, offering a service in. Yeah, I guess it's one, you know, as you mentioned, I've sort of worked in arts organisations and, you know, I studied a bit of performing arts back in the day. I was a bit of a cabaret performer, um, as we all were at some point. And I really... I guess immersed myself in the arts sort of scene, and 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 as I started studying psychology, I guess I really started to see the the need for mental health support in you know what we now know through research to be quite a high risk area for um, you know anxiety and depression and and um, mental health issues that the arts is, and um, so through that study of psychology, I guess when I came out um, and started practicing, I thought you know I guess for a while I really hoped to find a space to work in um, in psychology and the arts, and it didn't quite exist. So I sort of, after a while, just sort of, I guess, decided to create it for myself. So that's when I sort of started the business, and and now you know I work a lot with clients. So I, as a psychologist, I have clients who, you know, actors, directors, musicians, sort of across, um, you know, 
both looking at performance anxiety to, you know, a whole lot of other sort of issues that are quite um, prevalent within the arts. And then, um, and now working a lot more in workshops and consultation with, with, you know, different arts organisations. Just, I, I guess I just have this passion for, you know, trying to work on making the arts a better place for people to work in terms of their mental health and, and how do we change those structures to, to support that. How much understanding do you think there is outside of the arts of the mental health needs of workers inside the arts? Do you think that as like the, the wider general public have an understanding of what those needs are? Look, I don't, I think when you step outside of the arts, I think people have this picture of, the, of artists as being kind of these wealthy people that just kind of get to do the thing that is their passion and they're just sort of happy and, you know, having parties and making their art. Well, God, I wish that was the case. <laughs> Bloody hell. Absolutely. Because as you know, as soon as you step foot in the arts, you're just hyper aware of just the just everything from you know the lack of funding to the just fragility of of the occupation and it's just I think unless you're in it you really just don't understand how much you know passion isn't enough to kind of get you through life you like you need to have support structures around and you need to have uh, I, I feel value in yourself and to be valued as an industry. And I think that's that's a real issue, right? You know, certainly right now during, um, you know, this time of COVID especially where, you know, the arts, it's it's really shown, you know, governments through to all levels, it's just not valuing the arts and, and that really permeates right down to artists not feeling valued and, and that, you know, is not a good foundation for good mental health. And was there much of a basis for support for arts workers when you first started? focusing on working with people in the arts? Yeah, I mean, in Melbourne, you know, we have the Arts Wellbeing Collective here, which has been incredible to support. Um, they, they, you know, that you've now got Support Helpline, a, you know, a, a phone service for artists and also for people working in arts organisations to call to get phone counselling. It's a free service. Uh, the Arts Wellbeing Collective does, you know, a huge amount of work with different organisations um, supporting, you know, you know, workshops and mental health. So there's there's a bit around and there's certainly people doing research in the area and a lot of research coming out around Australia over the years that's shown just the high risk of, of uh, mental health issues within this population. Uh, and so, you know, they're starting to see this as, as a, a really an area of high need. And I think there's been this a really nice thing to see previous artists who have now trained as counsellors and psychologists and are really coming through and seeing that this is an area to specialise in and I hope it's an area that continues to grow and because the need is, you know, definitely there. Yes, particularly now and particularly like even before everything that had happened with COVID-19, it did always feel like Australia's arts community always existed on a bit of a precipice. So as an artist, thank you for being someone who goes out and supports artists with giving them that level of, love, you know, yeah, help and support. It's wonderful. When you first told me that that was what you were doing, I was just like, oh, I wish there were more people that would say that that was their job. We need more people to do that as a job. And I'm very, I feel very honoured, you know, to work, to work with this industry as well. You know, I, I've, I've got so much from the arts, like we all have it, over, over the years. And, you know, it's, it's, it's my way, I guess, to give back to this incredible industry that gives others so much. Well, to segue into talking about the arts, uh, let's have a bit of a chat about your relationship with Disney. So, do you remember what the first Disney film was that you saw? I feel like it was Beauty and the Beast. If that wasn't the first, it was certainly the most impactful uh, one on me. Uh, I have very clear visions of that VHS uh, and watching it. 
every, it's just like every weekend. Uh, that was absolutely a favourite. So you saw it first on VHS, you didn't see it at the cinemas? No, VHS. I, I, we hardly went to the movies as a kid. I'm not really, yeah, sure. It was very much, yeah, the VHS, that and uh, Robin Hood, I remember. Um, I had, a, I think my first crush really was probably on Robin Hood, that fox. Uh, <laughs> I think that I think he may have accidentally been most of our first crushes, to be honest. It's not until later in life where I think I realised my feelings for that fox were yeah were special. I can't wait to talk about that film for that very subject. I have a feeling that whatever angle I take, it has to be around how is it that we all find this anthropomorphic fox so attractive, so foxy. Um, but yeah, but I think then Beauty and the Beast and the just the songs. I mean, I just loved that world. I have very vivid memories of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, not an animated bit of Disney. Um, but yeah, though Disney has certainly been a very a very big part of my big part of my life. Well, that was my next question. How has Disney been like both from being a child to being an adult? How has Disney kind of sat within within your life? Uh, I think it's where I first remember music in film. I think I I and so you know, I was a musician as a kid and, you know, sing, and I, I just remember singing those songs and loving those songs. So I think it's where I discovered music in a lot of ways was through, I remember like buying the piano music for all these Disney songs and, and learning them. And I think I really wanted to, you know, learn music and to be able to sing the songs of Disney. So I think it gave me, it gave me music. Did you have a particular song that you love to play the most? Colors of the Wind was a, I, I very much remember um, playing that as a young boy on the piano and singing. Ah, uh, and of and I mean, all the time, you know, Beauty and the Beast songs. I mean, Tale as Old as Time. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an Angela Lansbury, like, fan, like, crazy fan. Um, and that's, I mean, you know, Disney gave me Angela Lansbury, which is a gift, a gift <laughs> that has kept on giving throughout the years. And has Disney persisted for you as an adult? How, what's your relationship with it now? It's a way that I have really bonded with my, I have two young nieces um, and I definitely sort of play, have over the years when I, you know, go and visit them, we normally watch a Disney film and I, you know, sort of introduce them to, to the film, so to speak. So it's been a beautiful way. To, to, I think the magic of Disney is when you get to see kids watch the movies that you watched as a kid and share that same joy and and you see it through them and, and you get to, you know, just see it through their eyes and then you feel like, you know, a child again. And I think that that's, yeah, that sense of joy and love that comes from that is amazing. There's also the wonderful, tremendous risk of when you show, like I, like I remember showing um, a friend's daughter, she was very young, um, but she came to visit and she wanted to watch a movie. So I put on Beauty and the Beast, which is my favorite Disney film. And I had this terrifying moment of thinking, what if she doesn't like it? <laughs> what if she, I had the same thing with, with um, my like previous partner. He had not seen Beauty and the Beast either. And so I had to sit him down and be like, all right, I'm going to show you this sacred work of art. Absolutely. What is, like, if you don't like it, I think I might never speak to you again. Thankfully, he did. And I think the battle I have with my younger nieces is they want to watch more of the new ones, whereas I try to kind of introduce, you know, but, but they've, they've certainly got to love love some of, the, uh, some of the older ones now, you know, I guess through my, through my sheer kind of persistence. <laughs> they, they, they love, you know, Belle as much as Elsa. As they should. As, as they, they should. should. I guess my other big, I, I recently, well, last year went to Disneyland and that was a dream of mine. And 
it's, it's just like just absolutely one of the happiest days of my life was, was being being in that place. Was it everything you wanted and more? It really just was. I like to go through, you know, because I was all about the shows um, so that, you know, there's a beautiful show on like a lake where it's Fantasia and it's all in the air and it's incredible. And then ran over to the firework display, which happens every night, which is it's just unbelievable to think that that happens every day because you just feel like it's happening just for you. But it was fireworks and then the kind of, you know, all the Disney songs and fireworks. And then it ended with out of nowhere in like an LA summer night sky, it started snowing. It was this, this beautiful kind of snow comes out of trees and out of nowhere and it feels like it's snowing and then they played Frozen and I just bawled crying. Like it was just like an absolute dream and lived up to every every part. So yes, I'm a, I'm a absolute um, Disney, Disney, <laughs> Disney fan, that's for sure. I keep on falling The first five years of feature animation production for Walt Disney and his studio had involved some of the largest and most expensive film projects of any kind. They had invented a form with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, perfected it with Pinocchio, blown it apart with Fantasia, and redefined it with Dumbo. They had pursued new technologies, established a new place of residence, weathered box office disappointment and financial insecurity, and a seismic shift in its company structure and culture with the union strike. In the midst of all this change and uncertainty, they continued to work away at a project that had taken years to develop, one whose simple premise did not prepare them for its artistic and technical complexity. With it, the art of animation would reach its peak, the culmination of decades of work in philosophy on the form. In much the same way that its title character, a young deer, a prince of the forest, comes to maturity through trial and tribulation, so with Bambi did Walt Disney Productions do the same. All of the animals in the forest gather to greet the newly born prince, a fawn named Bambi. Under the watchful eye of his mother, he begins to explore the forest and learn its ways, often joined by rambunctious young rabbit Thumper and sensitive young skunk Flower. Bambi's life is shattered though when, in the depths of winter, his mother is killed by man, a hunter in the forest. He is taken under the wing of his father, the great prince of the forest, and later returns as an adolescent. He reconnects with Thumper and Flower, and with Feline, a doe he had known as a child and now falls in love with. The return of man to the forest puts all the animals in danger, and a rogue forest fire destroys their homes. Bambi rescues Feline, and as spring returns, they welcome their own set of twin fawns, the cycle of nature beginning again. While Bambi is the fifth film in the Disney animated canon, it was the second to enter production after Snow White. The film is based on German author Felix Salton's novel Bambi, A Life in the Woods, published in serialised form in Vienna in 1922, in book form in 1923, and in English translation in 1928. The book, which follows the life of a male roe deer from birth to becoming a parent, was widely considered an instant classic, and is one of the first environmental novels. The US publishers had initially approached Disney with the film rights in the early 1930s, but in 1933, MGM producer and director Sidney Franklin purchased them himself and began developing it as a live-action project. Joseph Schenck at United Artists, who was Disney's distributor at the time, tried to broker a deal for Disney and Franklin to produce the project together as a feature film, 
an idea even Roy Disney was enthusiastic about, suggesting a 1934 release. After years of work though, it became clear that live action would be too difficult, and Franklin himself approached Walt Disney to take sole ownership of the project in 1935. He became intrigued by the possibilities and bought the rights from Franklin in April 1937, beginning work on the film immediately. Walt intended Bambi to be the studio's follow-up to Snow White, but quickly realised that even with the shift to animation, adapting Sultan's novel would be a challenge. The novel was aimed at adults, at times grim and violent, and it would take a considerable amount of story work to make it fit the mould of a Disney animated film. Walt also wanted to push for greater realism than had been achieved in animation before, but the animation staff did not yet have the skills to achieve this, especially when it came to the complex anatomy of deer. Following the release of Snow White, it was decided that Pinocchio would be their follow-up, but work still continued on Bambi. Rather than rush the process, Walt allowed the team to take their time, perfect their skills and develop the story. Their work would advance the art form in every single department, now given the time and resources to experiment. In the end, Bambi took four and a half years to complete, the longest of any of the early feature films. So when was the first time you remember seeing Bambi? What was your first experience with it? Definitely as a child. I think re-watching it, it made me realise, um, yeah, just how, you know, how much I did remember of it. I think re-watching it made me realise, oh my God, I remember that so vividly as I reckon I would have been in, you know, early primary school watching watching Bambi. Did it leave much of an impression on you as a child? Like, was it in terms of, you know, you were someone who watched a lot of Disney films as a child. Was it one that stuck out? Was it one that you kept returning to as a kid? Um, yeah, so I was Thumper. Thumper was very important to me as a kid, I remember. I was born with um, club feet, so I was, I've had a lot of operations to allow me to walk. And one of the things that it means is I kind of have, that my feet look quite different. and. And I have this strange thing that when I am going to bed at night or this, or, you know, sometimes when I'm laying on the couch, or whatever, my leg shakes. It's kind of this thing that that's been, and it shakes and my feet kind of thumps. And when I was a kid, I, you know, I kind of hated this and I didn't like that I did it. And then Thumper, that's how, you know, how Thumper, Thumper thumps that, thumps his leg. And I had this very clear memory of being like, I'm like Thumper, like I thump my foot like Thumper. Um, and so over the years, you know, people, my mum kind of has called me Thumper and, you know, Thumper's been this kind of like very strong kind of memory of my childhood. That's incredible. And I did not, and I did not know this. So I literally just gave you this film to talk about. We having no idea that you had that strong a connection to it. I'm Thumper, yeah. So it's a, it's a very strong memory of, of the first time seeing that. And all Thumper's lines, like listening them through, were just uh, things that I used to say all the time as a kid pretending to be Thumper. And what was your impression of it revisiting it as an adult? Uh, I think the beauty of it was something as a, you know, as a child, I think I was, you know, focused on the, the animals and the, and the fun of it. But I think as an adult, just the, um, just the artistic sensibility and the beauty of, of the animation really stuck with me. Um, and as did the music. I think I appreciated the music in a different way, um, watching it through. Because I think, yeah, it's when you have an animation, you know, obviously Disney films still have music these days, but 
when it's so the music is so key to communicating the change of season and it just so and so much beauty in this film that and it's so you know just the or just just such beautiful music that i think that, yeah just the beauty of it was something that i really picked up on in the watch through as an adult and it hits you from pretty much the moment it begins like the very first, I, I i checked check, last time i watched it earlier today i checked it's five minutes into the film before anyone any character actually says a word like obviously you have the music um the the, the um choir singing um love is a song that never ends but the first five minutes is just this very beautiful slow tracking shot through this artificial art, artistically created forest with this absolutely beautiful subtle score and it's just it's so the 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 beauty of the film kind of hits you from the moment it begins. And I, I find myself every time I watch it kind of having to take a bit of a breath just because it's so, it's literally breathtaking. And also just to think that that's a thing that a human being created. Like that's just a bunch of lines on a piece of paper. Yeah. They're just so, you know, they're hand drawn. They're those, like just some of those, Im- I mean, stick with it. Some of those images of the rain, the, the, the reflection at the end of, you know the kind of the rain scene and the the fire and the like it's just so vivid the colors in in so many so many of those shots no single artist had a greater influence on the look and texture of bambi than chinese born artist tyrus wong born in china in 1910 wong and his father immigrated to the us in 1920 after which he never saw his mother or sister again. Due to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prohibited the immigration of all Chinese labourers to the United States, they immigrated illegally under assumed identities, eventually settling in Los Angeles. Wong's artistic abilities were encouraged by his father, and thanks to a scholarship, he was able to study at the Otis Art Institute, graduating in the early 1930s. When he joined the studio in 1938, he began work as an in-betweener, work he greatly disliked. Early development had already begun on Bambi, and as well as studies into animal anatomy, a team of photographers took a photographic study of the woods around Maine, shooting hundreds of images. Initially, the background work on the film attempted to emulate the intricate natural detail of the forest, but the results were intense and overwhelming, and much like the character designs, the art direction team were struggling to solve this visual issue. When Wong heard about the work being done on Bambi, he read the book, created a series of watercolour landscapes using an impressionistic style informed by Song Dynasty classic Chinese paintings, and submitted them to art director Tom Kodrick for consideration. Kodrick immediately recognised that there was something special in Wong's work, and showed them to Disney, who agreed. Wong was appointed an art director and conceptual artist on Bambi, and his work established the entire visual approach to the film. He created a series of small watercolour and pastel studies that were expanded into full background layouts. They were simple, striking, dramatic, and highly emotional, and captured the atmosphere of the forest without overwhelming the image with detail. In a revolutionary turn, he emphasized detail in the center of the image, where the characters usually would be, and decreased detail towards the edge of the image, drawing the eye towards the center and the characters. This simple choice would become an industry standard for decades to come. Wong was laid off from the studio in 1941 following the strike, and despite his landmark work, inherent racism towards Chinese Americans meant that his contribution went unknown for decades. He went on to work for both Warner Brothers Animation and for Hallmark, and later in life, a series of retrospective exhibitions of his work brought him the recognition he deserved. In 2013, 
the Walt Disney Family Museum honoured him with an exhibition, bringing his remarkable work in Bambi to greater public attention. Tyrus Wong died in 2016 at the age of 106, finally counted as one of the most important artists in the history of animation. Looking at it now with the lens of your professional practice, how did that, just kind of as a general question, because obviously there's a lot going on in terms of the psychology of these characters, you know, particularly Bambi of the transition from being a child, having the experience of being faced by mortality and then moving into adolescence and adulthood. In a kind of a general sense, how did you find revisiting the film through the lens of your professional practice? It was interesting because, I, as I said, I've, um, so I've worked in, with child psychology. I'm an education developmental psychologist um, by trade, so I work a lot in sort of child development and study that and teach that at uni. And it was interesting to watch it through the lens of looking at the development of Bambi. Um, and one of the things that I've studied and work in is gender development. And it was really interesting to... Even I was watching it with friends and when it started, they were like, I didn't realize Bambi was male. Bambi was a boy. I always thought Bambi was female. And it's really interesting to watch, you know, Bambi is very, when, you know, when, you know, she's, he's first born is to just see the feminine, femininity, I guess, in, in Bambi as, as a, as a young kid. And we, we see this in kind of in human development that, you know, kids are pretty agendered. There's not a really strong understanding of male or female that really happens until about, you know, four five or six. And when they hit primary school, and it's really interesting to see Bambi showing a lot of sort of femininity until Bambi meets Feline. And then it's kind of the masculine energy sort of comes out and, the masculinity really is performed as soon as that kind of female character that Feline sort of comes through. And then that kind of, you see the aggressive kind of masculinity sort of come through. So from a gender development level, it was really interesting to watch. The moments where he, his masculinity comes through, it's exactly, so it's, it's more performative than it is inherent. It's actually quite, it reminded me of the moment in Pinocchio where he goes to Pleasure Island and Lampwick says, hey, let's go beat some people up. And he throws away his ice cream and his pie and he, adopts this kind of hyper-masculine walk, which is completely the antithesis of Pinocchio's of um, personality, that it's kind of like at the moment where Bambi meets Feline and has to kind of work out a way of how to interact with her, he just reverts to a series of, of like, observed behaviour, or immediately observed behaviours in the fact that he's only now just seeing what other male deer, how other male deer behave when all of the stags appear. Yes, and, and that kind of, that perf- formative kind of masculine energy kind of comes out. And then later when, you know, he, you know, then has to fight the other kind of stag for Feline later on. And it like the masculinity is sort of performed in, in relationship to Feline really. And it, it was kind of interesting to kind of see as, as Bambi grew older, the, the kind of the masculinity come through rather than the, I guess, the femininity that you see when, when Bambi's really young. On the subject of, um, performative gender and that kind of stuff with the film one of the characters i find the most fascinating in this film is flower because again like you know like you said a lot of people assume that bambi is 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 a female character i always have to remind myself man how many times i watch it that when flower turns up the flower is not a girl but the response that flower has to a being referred to as flower referred to as pretty um the the kind of joy that he has in being complimented by bambi 
all have, like, from what popular culture has trained us to think, they're all signifiers of a feminine personality or a feminine behavior. Um, but it's not, which is kind of a beautiful, like, breath of fresh air. And, like, I think possibly accidental breath of fresh air in this film. And I think we I was watching it with, you know, a bunch of queers, and I think we all we're sort of trying to see this kind of queer energy from Flower. You know, there's this sense of, you know, you know, kind of femininity through and his kind of um, that, you know, using the towel almost as a feather boa and with all the flowers, you know, it's it kind of had this kind of beautiful queer energy. And it was interesting then the, the moment where I think it's the owl first talks about being twitterpated and just kind of goes through the character says you know it's a baby you know you'll 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 be twitter baby you'll be twitter and then gets the flowers like even you will find love and it was like this sense of oh wow even the queer character like which is you know i'm sure was not written but it was interesting to just see as a you know as a queer adult now watching this that i picked up on that energy and i'm wondering me as a kid whether you know, I'm, I'm sure I loved Flower as well, you know, for that similar, you know, I, I was the kind of, you know, in grade two, I wanted a um, rhythmic gymnastic rhythm, a uh, ribbon for Christmas and my parents bought it for me. So I was dancing around my room with my, you know, ribbon and I'm sure I would have loved, loved Flower as well. How accurately do you think the film captures the experience of like those early childhood experiences of being young boy like to, of, of growing like being a young boy because i mean the film apart from feline and bambi's mother there's almost no major female presence in the film at all which is not unusual for the early golden age disney films but how accurately does do you think the film represents that uh the learning experience the kind of sensory exploration and understanding of self that happens to bambi and flower and thumper in the early part of the film well there's some interesting i you know, direct developmental stages that you see that, that do kind of correlate with human development a little bit. So when when um, Bambi's learning to speak and the first word is bird and then, then it's butterfly. And it's interesting because the bird sound is actually developmentally the first sound that most kids make. It's bird, you know, it's one of the easiest to make, bird and then dirt and then gut because they're at different parts in the of the mouth. So the, the ones at the front are the easiest sounds to make. Um, Whereas, and then later on, you see Bambi um, look at uh, his reflection and notice that it's him. And that's also a developmental stage that happens sort of around, you know, three, where where a child actually looks at the reflection and acknowledges and understands that that's them in the reflection. And we, we can study this with primates as well as human beings, where you put like a dot on the nose. So if you put on the, the dot on the nose of a one-year-old, they'll look in the mirror and not really care. But if you put a dot on the nose of a three-year-old, they look themselves in the mirror and they wonder what's on their nose because they can recognize that it's them. So it's interesting that you do kind of see these developmental stages. Um, I think I really remember Bambi's legs sign of when they first are standing up. You know, you see that kind of gross motor development later on. But I think what's developmentally, I guess, interesting is the the point of, you know, her mother's death too, I guess. So I'll just bring that up now. Um, and the, you know, I don't want to explore the alert, I guess. Um, but the the sense of impact that that has on the, the way that that, the impact of that is is developed in the film is that it really moves from really a young kind of child to all of a sudden being kind of, you know, an adolescent male kind of within a scene, um, which 
which emulates often the, the impact of death on children, that, that sense of having to grow and become independent quickly. How much does environment like impact the early stages of development? Because, I mean, the one of the real joys of the first act, obviously before, you know, um, we get to his mother's death, the one of the real joys of watching Bambi is watching him learn about the world around him, like having to kind of contend with what does this, what is this animal, why is it doing that? You know, this is grass, this is a, this is a clover, this is snow. Like how important is that early stage of development with environment? How much does that impact? Well, this is, I mean, nature versus nurture is sort of the number one thing that psychology has been studying for, for iotas. The, this sense of, you know, how much does the environment nurture personality or nurture, nurture you know, how the identity of, as, as someone becomes. And I, and I think, you know, it has a huge impact and it, as it does on animals compared to human beings compared to anyone, that your surroundings you know, in, you know, the, the whole idea is that you have a genetic predisposition perhaps to a certain temperament or to a certain way of being, but it's the environment that really acts on that predisposition to, for you to develop uh, as you'll be. And, you know, I think Bambi is certainly surrounded by, you know, the, the friends and the, the, you know, the environment, you know, all around um, to really, I guess, you know, and then the later death, you know, all these things kind of influence, you know, the, the personality and the person to become. He's kind of the luckiest of the of the first set of Disney films. He's kind of one of the luckiest protagonists to begin with, even though he eventually has the, 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 the greatest tragedy inflicted upon him. I mean, Dumbo's life is kind of hell from almost the minute he's born and Pinocchio is constantly thrown into making a million terrible decisions and we have to assume that Snow White has been stuck being a maid to the evil queen from a young age but Bambi actually has a childhood he actually has a period of like he has a period of being able to find to a certain degree who he is but also to establish a really strong support system for himself he knows where he where he feels safe he knows who to ask questions of um you know this I, another thing i always find wonderfully unusual is the fact that bambi's mother lets him run off with the with with the rabbits like to go and learn how to walk and learn how to talk and then he just kind of goes off in his own um but as there's such a there's such a nurturing comfort to the first act of bambi apart from when they go onto the meadow which is you know beautifully kind of seeded into the film this slow advance of this is a place where something terrible could happen but not necessarily a place where something terrible will happen is there's a real warmth um, and safety to the first act of this film. I mean, in many ways, you know, I think Bambi's mother really kind of displays a kind of ideal parent where you want to supply the the stability and the kind of nurturing kind of safety at the same time as encouraging kind of freedom and independence. That It's kind of the push-pull parenting that you want to kind of, you know, offer the solid foundation on which a child can actually experiment with independence and take risks. And I think that, you know, that running, you know, going off with the rabbits and, you know, there's this sense, especially early on, of where there's kind of a bit of a risk, but then, you know, obviously, you know, the first time in the meadow, there's a bit of a risk, but it, it ends okay, which, but that's a really important kind of stage for children to go through where, where they're given a freedom to take a risk and to to build resilience through through that risk. So I think there's some there's some beautiful parenting I think happening with Bambi early on as well. If you compare the animated deer in Snow White in 1937 to the animated deer in Bambi in 1942, the difference is astronomical. 
While the former has all the hallmarks of a deer exaggerated into cartoon form, the latter cuts much closer to reality, emulating the shape and movement of a deer within the artificial language of animation. The deer in Snow White became a benchmark for the artists on Bambi, a low bar that needed to be improved upon in order for a film, where they would become the protagonists, to work. In the early development stages, the animators found it hard to reconcile the anatomy of a deer with the dramatic action in the story. Their eyes were positioned far apart on either side of their heads, and the shape of their mouths was not ideal for articulate speech. Production on the film began in August 1939, but rather than rush the process, Walt allowed the artists to take their time, to refine the designs and solve these enormous problems. Without effective solutions, he knew the film simply would not work. The artist began an intricate study of the natural world. Italian-American painter and sculptor Rico Lebrun was invited to the studio to lecture on his studies and work on animals, focusing on their anatomy, structure and movement. They began by making live study of animals at the Los Angeles Zoo, and later at a smaller zoo set up at the studio by Disney. Ducks, skunks, rabbits and other small creatures were part of the on-site zoo, as well as two fawns which they named Bambi and Feline. The problem was, as accurate as these studies were, they lacked discernible personality. Animator Mark Davis eventually cracked this riddle, taking the anatomical fawn studies done by Lebrun and exaggerating the facial features to emulate those of a human baby, shortening the snout, bringing the eyes closer together and making them bigger. Much as Bill Teitler had done with Dumbo, Bambi's personality was based more on that of a young child than a fawn and the careful combination of the two elements made for a character with tremendous personality and empathy without sacrificing too much of the realism. It was an enormous breakthrough for the production, guiding the narrative as well as the visuals, and the same principle was applied to Thumper and Flower. The personalities of the young characters were also influenced by the voice casting. For example, when four-year-old Peter Bean was auditioned with a group of other young boys for the role of Thumper, his open and loud personality was so distinctive and rambunctious that his voice informed the character itself, including his inability to remember long sentences. Well, they brought in a group of kids to do the bunny family, and uh, they had the scene where they met Bambi for the first time, and he'd fallen down trying to walk. So uh, they gave each one of these kids, say, now you say, what's the matter? And you say, what happened? And you say, did the young prince fall down? And you say, is he hurt? Everybody got it? And they say, yep. So here we roll the tape. Well, we don't have tape then, we roll the film. And the first little girl says, uh, what's the matter? What happened? Did the young prince fall down? <laughs> and so the guy said, hey, get that kid out of here. He can't act. So they sent him home. And the next day, when the animators heard the, the film, they said, oh, a great voice. Who is that kid? Get him in here. So the quick had to scramble around <laughs> and try to find him again. There were still challenges, though. While Bambi's mouth could accommodate speech, animating the mouth of his mother proved difficult. For this reason, she often speaks off-screen, the image instead focusing on Bambi's reaction to her. Another issue arose during the inking and painting process. The legs of the deer needed to remain rigid, but the women in ink and paint found that they couldn't trace the in-betweener animation without it resulting in the animation wobbling when in action. To solve this, they suggested that rather than the in-betweener work being done on paper, the in-betweener artist should draw directly onto the cells themselves. This meant much more work but the results were breathtaking. This is probably a slightly unusual question, but it's one of take kind of taken for granted now in the fact that you know it's you know the film is 
almost 80 years old, and we're so used to the idea now of um, animals that have human attributes as, as protagonists in an animated film, and in some, in some cases, live-action films, in the case of something like Babe. Why do you think that's important for us? Why do you think that an anthropomorphized animal is a much easier protagonist for us to connect with and learn from than if the animal was depicted with complete photorealism? I think people learn when they see themselves in something. Uh, when, when, and I think, the, the, in a sense, the, the blanker the canvas sometimes, the more likely you are to put your, yourself into it. And I, I think with, certainly with animals, when they just have the facial features, I think there's a real sense that people kind of can, can kind of see themselves in, the, in these characters' faces or see themselves in these animals. Whereas if it was a photorealistic person, if you don't look similar to them or if you don't kind of associate yourself with them, you may not have the same kind of learning. Whereas I think with animals, we kind of all kind of see them as, you know, we kind of put ourselves into, into them, so to speak. Um, I think what Disney does, especially in this film, is it accentuates the parts of faces, like faces are processed by our brain in a very different way to anything else that we view. And which is why we can process what these characters go through as if they're humans, because they have faces like humans, basically. And I think any of the emotion that's conveyed through these faces, and especially, you know, Bambi, you know, we when we see that kind of Cupid doll, kind of big eyes, kind of like baby-like kind of faces. You know, we're all primates, including human beings, are programmed to care for faces that look like that. This is why, you know, they they make the argument for why Leonardo DiCaprio was so kind of, you know, um, popular for a lot of people is because he has a Cupid old kind of face. And when you talk to people about what they feel for Leonardo, someone did a research project in this, uh, where you talk, when people talk about their love for Leo, it's a sense of wanting to nurture and care for him. Um, because of that, that Cupid doll face kind of sets that off in, in people. And I think Bambi has that Cupid doll. You know, we, we see those eyes and we just want to care. You know, I don't think anyone can watch the first few scenes of this film of like Bambi's birth without wanting to just care for and love Bambi. Like it's just like a genetic thing that I think is imprinted on all of us. Um, and it, and it's because of the face. It's because of how we are processing the, the way the face is being portrayed. And it's kind of the, the magical genius of the film that it's impossible, I find it impossible to watch a film like Bambi um, and not have an intense emotional response to him and not or to any of them, really. Like the fact that, you know, when he smiles with delight at the side of the first spring grass, like that amazing moment of him kind of looking inquisitively and then his face just breaks into this giant smile, you can't help but kind of respond with him. Like it's it's hard not to either as a child kind of connect with that ex- that immediate experience of discovery and excitement and immediate sensory um, responses and then watching it as an adult to kind of go back to the memory of what those experiences were like. In fact, I was, I was never a particularly big fan of Bambi when I was a kid. It was one of those, I definitely saw it, but it never had much of a response. I had a much stronger emotional response to the film in my 20s um, that when it was re- re- um, restored and put on DVD, I watched it and it just destroyed me. And it destroyed me not not because of the de- of, of Bambi's mother's death, but pretty much from the beginning because it just so beautifully and accurately captured um, the sense of what it is to be a child. And the characters were so easy for me to 
kind of project myself, exactly what you're saying, like project myself and project my brothers and sisters and project my friends and my family and that kind, and anybody else that I knew and cared about, I could project them into the personalities of these drawings of rabbits and skunks and, and deer. And I think that sense of playfulness, childhood, you don't see in a lot of films. I mean, like, as you kind of said, in a lot of Disney films, normally, you know, the from the moment of the beginning of the film, the, the protagonist is often, you know, only has one parent or is fighting for something or there's not normally a lot of sense of having that childlike kind of playfulness um, and development. And you really, yeah, it's really beautiful to just give, there's a lot of space at the beginning of this film, like space to, to see the, the landscape and to, to just, and there's not many, you know, characters, there's not a, you know, a lot happening. It's just kind of space to, to see the beauty of, of the surroundings and, and the, the beauty of kind of childhood and, and, and development. And it's a really lovely touch that the vocal performances, none of them sound like they're putting on the voice of a possum or a bird or a deer or an owl. They're just human voices. Like the, the my, my favourite sounds in the film is the sound of all the rabbits laughing or the moment where they're trying to get um, Bambi to say bird and there's, you know, the rabbits are laughing and the little birds are laughing, and but they just have children's voices. They're not being put they're not being manipulated not being put like you know they're not pretending to be the animals that they are there's such a warm human presence in the, the vocal performances and the vocal landscape of the film and the development of the like the kids voices and then later when you you know meet thumper or flower like they're they're more adult voices like and it's very clear you can but they're still human voices like you're still really obviously connecting to to the, the human the qualities within those voices, um, especially the kids. Oh, those rabbits! Oh, so cute. You just want to you just want to play with all like not of course you know hanging out with a bunch of uh, baby rabbits would be would be great, but particularly baby rabbits who are just going to laugh. At, like one of my favourite things that kids do is when they get excited, they scream. Like there's no sound in the world that I love more than the sound of a bunch of kids that are so excited that they can't help but just scream their happiness out. And so every time, you know, Bambi says a word and they have to scream and laugh because it's just so overwhelming for them. They've got no other choice. How much does the depiction of landscape and environment impact the emotional, have an emotional impact on the viewer? But less than just the landscape and the environment, I think the music for me is, you know, any anytime you're looking at the landscape or the environment, you know, there's obviously music as well. And I think for me, you know, maybe as a musician, it's it has more of an impact, but it's the music that, you know, creates the emotion. Uh, you know, I think, you know, if, you know, if you play those landscape scenes without music, obviously they're not going to have that same emotional, like especially when the rain is dripping and like it's all that emotion and is, is communicated through, through music. And, it, and it, I think it just, again, you know, we know that music is so, inherently linked to to emotion for people that you know again it's the, the parts of your brain that process music are, are different to the parts of your brain that process any other sound and they're so innately connected to the parts of your brain that process emotion which is why when you listen to music you can feel the, what you felt when you first heard that song it's like that emotional memory is so clear and i think the landscape the music that's played under that landscape is just so evocative um, for so much of so much of this film and um and it's yeah the change of season and you know it's just a very vivid um communication of emotion i think that comes through the score 
The death of Bambi's mother may be the most iconic moment in any Disney film. It is so powerful that it has become a cultural touchstone, imprinted on all our collective consciousness, whether we've seen the film or not. Its emotional impact, though, comes just as much from the manner of its execution as it does from its role in the narrative. The death scene was part of Sultan's original novel, but while many of the other darker elements were removed in the adaptation, there was no question that the scene needed to be included in the film. Much thought was put into how the sequence should be visualised, as well as how best to represent man in the film. Early concepts included seeing Bambi's mother actually being shot as she jumped over a log, but screenwriter Larry Maury, who had been given the task of adapting the novel, felt that to show the death would be too dramatic. Instead, her death is implied. We see a series of shots where Bambi is dashing across the meadow followed by his mother. These shots are repeated, with his mother calling for him to run faster, when suddenly we hear the gunshot. In the following shot, we see Bambi running out of the meadow, but his mother never follows. No major protagonist had ever died in a Disney film before, and the impact was enormous. In the decades since, most audiences have become convinced that they saw the bullet hit Bambi's mother, even though we never see it in the film. So affecting was the sequence. There was such a finality to it when she died. This wasn't a fantasy, and there was no prince to kiss somebody and bring them back to life. Uh, there was no fairy to wave a wand. This was it. And of course, it made everything really believable that followed that in the, the fire and when Bambi gets shot. Uh, everything that happened from then on, you couldn't help but believe. There were also early plans to show man in the film, mostly as a shadow. They had even considered showing man's death at the end of the film, with a shot of his body burnt at the campsite following the forest fire. But just as with the death of Bambi's mother, it was decided a simpler option would have more impact. If we can do without showing man at all, story director Perce Pierce said in a story meeting, it makes a much broader menace. It overcasts the whole forest. The minute you start showing a guy, you reduce the whole thing. To them, he should almost be an element. In the end, it was composers Frank Churchill and Edward Plum who offered the most effective solution, a three-note ascending musical phrase that would represent man's presence in the forest. It offered a chilling counterpoint to the pastoral beauty of the rest of the score, and its effectiveness has led many to suspect that the theme for man in Bambi was a major influence on John Williams's two-note ascending musical phrase for the shark in Jaws. The death of Bambi's mother is yet another landmark aspect of Bambi, and is now a foundational example when discussing devastating moments in cinema. Decades later, it would be a reference point for the death of Littlefoot's mother in Don Bluth's The Land Before Time, and the death of Mufasa in The Lion King. How important is that moment in Bambi's emotional development? You mentioned it a bit before, but to kind of focus on it for a bit, what importance does it hold? Well, there's, I mean, there's many things to analyse here, but in terms of the impact on the audience, you know, we'll kind of focus on that later. But the, the impact on Bambi, it was really interesting to see that you've just got all this space for her, uh, for his, sorry, now I'm getting wrong, um, development. And then just as, you know, things are sort of starting to develop and, and things are progressing, there, you know, it's obviously the loss of, of that nurturing, as I was talking about before, you want a parent to be kind of that nurturing, nurturing, secure kind of foundation. And 
I think the thing that, you know, I have a very vivid memory of that mother, mother, like I, that that's very imprinted into my mind as a, as a young kid, just that, that vision of Bambi just running, just continuing to run and then um, calling mother and, and mother's not there. And what's interesting with the film is that there's not much space or time given to the grief. You know, it's kind of the death happens the next scene. Bambi's kind of an adolescent and kind of seemingly kind of has processed it. And I think what, you know, I think what's interesting there is the lack of space given to grieving because for children, grief is a very complex, you know, difficult thing and often there's not the capacity to understand it and you do you do just sort of have to move on and and sometimes that pain and that hurt is kind of processed years later in in therapy or in in different relationships but um i think the impact on bambi is that sense that you need to you know i think the the wise stag i'm not sure does that have a name the the great prince of the forest and obviously kind of says that uh, you know that line that you know your mother can't be with you anymore, which is just that clear, distinct way to communicate that to to a child. You know, that's um, and that all Bambi's left to do is is to become independent. You know, the next time we see Bambi, you know, there's kind of this independence um, and adolescence, and I think that it kind of communicates that that's what's had to happen for Bambi. That you know, the the you just have to move through and, and, and find that independence because it sort of lost that foundation. How useful do you think that is as a depiction of mortality and death and grief for children? Say, as a point of comparison, say, to Mufasa's death in The Lion King, um, how effective is this scene as being a way to start the conversation with children about what death is and what mortality is? I think the way to feel that, you know, Mother can't be with you anymore is a helpful sort of Way, you know, way to get that across. You know, it's not focusing on death. It's not focusing on heaven. Um, one, one uh, you know, for example, it can be quite challenging when death is explained to children in a way that involves life after death. So that can be difficult for children who are still sort of grasping the difference between reality and kind of pretend. And, you know, if they're at that developmental stage, it's quite difficult for for when people as a and in a in a way to show care. You know, people might say, you know. You, you know, mother's still with us and she's looking down on us. And this sort of language can be really confusing for children. Um, whereas to say very clearly, you know, mother can't be with you right now is a, is a bit more of a clear kind of useful way to sort of, you know, say that. Um, I think what we don't see, though, is any of, we don't see any of the grief. And, I, you know, I, I think it's never useful to depict any death without without kind of a space and acceptance of the long process and, and the grief that, that does come under that. And and so I think, you know, it would have been nice to see some sort of support or, or maybe grief process somehow um, with, within this. But I think as a way to see, um, yeah, that, that it is final, I think that's a very difficult thing to communicate but a very important thing to communicate um, during any sort of death within the family. And it does come as a bit of a shock when it moves into the section on spring because it's so sudden and you think that because not just because of the kind of 
the, the not just because of the impact of watching the sequence in the film as it is, but also our understanding of how culturally important that particular moment is. You expect that it's going to have that it's going to have a tremendous amount of space given to it. The immediate moment after her death of him wandering through um, the storm trying to find her does kind of give build beautifully to the moment of having to see the great prince of the forest. But it does feel you do feel kind of like you have even as an audience you haven't had quite a chance to process what it is that you've just seen. And certainly for an audience in 1942, I mean, this is the first death in a Disney film, which means it's the first death in a cartoon ever um, that we know of, um, that that would have been a real shock. And it hit me actually thinking about it, watching it today, that what that would have then meant for the audience when Bambi is shot. Because we forget, like, that's a point of the story you always forget, that Bambi also gets shot at the end of the film. And that to have been set up that death is actually a part of the narrative of this film. It's part of the thematic landscape of this film. To then have death be reintroduced later on would have probably would have had an even greater impact on an audience then of thinking, well, I don't know what's going to happen to this character now because death now all of a sudden is part of the language of animation. Why do you think this particular scene has such an impact? And weirdly, why do you think people walk out of the film convinced they've seen Bambi's mother actually be shot. Because it's the same of like people thinking that a knife went into Marion Crane in Psycho. It's not a thing we ever see, but people are convinced that it's a thing that they saw when they were children. It's the power of absence. So much of what we perceive in our world is not what we see, is not what our senses, you know, are taking in. What what we perceive is what's processed, what our mind processes around us and you know it's it's kind of a strange way to put it but um what the what you're seeing right now is a is you know a, a couple of milliseconds behind reality because it takes time for your brain to process what you're seeing um and that's what you perceive and so so much of what we perceive our brain almost you know to save the cognitive energy is kind of predicting what we're going to see so this is why it's quite difficult to process something that's quite new in your vision as opposed to you know stuff that you've seen before is processed quite easily um so what this means is we go through most of our life sort of pre with our brain sort of preempting what we're going to what we're going to perceive why this connects to here is because there's this absence you don't see the death you don't but your brain is preempting that it's coming it's you know and so you don't need to see it for your mind to then perceive it like it's happened because everything leading up to that moment, every bit of music, everything, you know, every, there's every sort of bit that your brain is kind of being led to believe that you're about to see this thing. And even though it doesn't happen, you know, your, your brain is perceiving it as sort of as if, if it did, which I think is why then it's so impactful on people because like we were talking about before, when there's absence, people can put into that space whatever they want. And what they'll put in there is something that is personally kind of impactful and and has a, they have a personal connection to. And I think this death is, you know, is certainly sort of one of those examples of just, you know, you, you're putting in there, you know, into that space, just, you know, a, just an, an, a sad kind of horrible sort of moment and, and death um, that, that you're left thinking about even though you didn't see it. Why do fictional deaths have such an impact on us, do you think? I mean, that's a very big, probably quite complex question, but, I mean, we're talking about 
a, a, a set of drawings, really, and yet we're like they're devast- It's a devastating moment. It's a devastating moment, and has been for nearly eighty years. And people still like I when you know this film comes up in conversation. I have people that go, "Oh no, I can't watch that. It's too sad." Yeah, why do you think fictional deaths have an impact on us? Well, I mean, death, you know, is the great kind of fear. Of, it's the great anxiety, you know, um, that that it's that thing we, you know, don't speak of and don't think about. You know, Freud would have <laughs> there's, there's mountains of stuff to read about death from him. That that's so much, oh, you know, it's too hard to even think about that we deny it and we repress that kind of fear of death. But it, but it's there. So anything that brings up death has this impact because it, it's connected to our our own sense of mortality, which is just too, you know, too difficult to kind of even consider. Um, and I think, so I think in these fictional, you know, Disney, it's a master manipulator of emotion. Um, and I think we've just spent, you know, a good portion of time investing into Bambi and his mother and watching a child and watching, you know, just turning on every part of our mind that is about nurturing and loving and, you know, beauty and, and you know, it's just setting us up and manipulating us to such um, a space where that death happens that it's, you know, we're not just sort of having an emotional kind of um, reaction to to that death. We're having an emotional reaction to the idea of death itself, um, and I think that is what you know sits with people when when they say they don't want to watch this film again. It's it's you know it's it's like saying I don't want to you know I don't want to think about death again. Thanks, you know, um, and it speaks I guess how effective this film is in in communicating that. Do you think it's a useful ma- manipulation? I think it's uh, useful for people to understand death as part of life um i you know i think of the existential psychologists that kind of talk to us about how you know death is should be the ultimate motivator for you making the most out of your life as you can because we have a you know um rollo may used to say you know put your hand on your heart and acknowledge that you only have a finite number of heartbeats so what are you going to do with them that sense that um you know, so anything where we're talking about death and acknowledging death, if we're doing it in a useful way, it should be motivating us to take advantage of our life rather than clinging to some fake sense of fountain of youth that we can be young forever. And I think this film does that. You know, it's quite interesting to have death as part of a, a narrative, especially in animals. You know, death is obviously circle of life is kind of obviously an ongoing kind of Disney theme. Um, and what's interesting is after this death, quite soon after we have like springtime, you know, which is a time of, you know, birth and, and new life. And, and so I think there's a sense of, you know, I, I think it's useful to see death as a normal part of life rather than trying to pretend like it's never going to happen. Um, and I guess Bambi does that. Music is one of the defining elements of Disney animation, and the early films feature some of the most incredible music ever written for the screen. One man who contributed to those films was Frank Churchill, a composer whose work essentially established the Disney musical style. Churchill was born in October 1901 in Rumford, Maine, and his family moved to California when he was four. He developed a love and aptitude for music at a young age, even playing piano for silent films in cinemas when he was 15, but his parents pushed for him to study medicine. He quickly dropped his medical studies to pursue a music career, which included work in Mexico, Arizona, and Hollywood. He joined the Disney studio in 1930 and began composing for the Silly Symphony shorts. It was during one such assignment, on Three Little Pigs, that he composed Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, 
which became an enormous commercial success and an unexpected anthem during the Depression. Churchill would compose music for nearly 65 shorts before being given the daunting assignment of composing the songs and score for Snow White, along with Paul Smith and Lee Harline. The success of Snow White also extended to its songs, many of which became commercial hits, and they were collected in the first ever commercially released film soundtrack. Churchill was appointed music supervisor at the studio, and in 1942, he and Oliver Wallace won an Academy Award for their remarkable score for Dumbo, as well as a nomination for Baby Mine. His work would also feature in later films such as The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad and Peter Pan, including the deleted but still hugely popular song for the latter, Never Smile at a Crocodile. Wallace's score for Bambi, though, is his triumph, a complex and breathtaking composition, capturing the sweeping emotional scope of the film. The songs, which he co-wrote with Edward Plum, follow in the same vein as those in Dumbo, commenting on the action rather than advancing it, and not sung by characters in the film. But in much the same way Tyrus Wong's artwork captured the impressionistic visual look of the forest, the music in Bambi acts as its voice. Perhaps the most breathtaking example of this is the song April Showers, a deceptively complex and thrilling choral work that perfectly captures the sound, movement and electricity of raindrops. Churchill's score amplifies the epic nature of Bambi, from the running of the deer to the forest fire to the simple, chilling and iconic theme for man, coming to a crescendo in the gentle, almost spiritual beauty of Love is a Song That Never Ends. The score for Bambi is one of the finest ever composed, and would earn Churchill an Oscar nomination, but it would be a posthumous one. Frank Churchill committed suicide on May 14, 1942, three months after the film was released. He had suffered from severe depression and heavy drinking, and in recent months had suffered the loss of a number of close friends in a short space of time. He was found at his piano. Churchill's work is now regarded as a benchmark in the development of film music, and nowhere is that contribution clearer and more ecstatic than in Bambi, his crowning achievement. He was inducted as a Disney legend in 2001. So when we return to Bambi after his mother's death, we see him as an, ostensibly as an adolescent. What, uh, talk to me about the portrayal of Bambi as an adolescent, from like the, tra- after, you know, the transition from childhood through the experience of mortality into working towards being an adult. What shifts, what changes um, in the depiction? Well, I mean, physically, obviously, we see it's almost like Bambi's been through puberty. We sort of see that secondary sex characteristics kind of develop, like his kind of, you know, the horns and the kind of there's there's a development there that communicates, obviously, growth. Um, then I think we see the, the the you know, our sort of talking about um, love and falling in love. So I think... The birds and the bees, basically. The birds and the bees. So that we, you know, we're talking about sex, we're talking about relationships and, you know, that that in some ways developmentally is what happens in adolescence. It's the time you start to become attracted to other um, other people um, in, in that kind of sexual way. And I think that's kind of communicated. How does Bambi rate in its depiction of sex? Because there is, I think there's definitely a depiction of sex in Bambi. Like there's quite clear signifiers and languages around sex um, and attraction in the Twitter painted sequence. Absolutely. Like the, I mean, the, the, um, I'm not sure, but kind of flowers, femme fatale that kind of arrives and that you, like that, you know, you see her bosoms almost through that. Like there's this real kind of coded language of, of um, voluptuousness and femininity in, in a lot of these kind of 
female animals you meet along the way. Thumper's love interest is basically Mae West. Like that. Like the minute she comes, she came on screen watching it. Now having an understanding of like forty cinema, you're like, that's Mae West. Like that's what's going to become the film noir femme fatale figure shape. The way that she's shot. The way that like the way that her eyes dominate the entire screen when she gets right up close to Thumper. Absolutely. It's quite. It's quite a lot. And it's where we see the first kind of quite very non a realistic depiction. So when when the skunk when flower is kissed and then kind of turns red and becomes stiff and that it's the first one we kind of then it's not a very realistic moment. Like everything else is quite real. But but that well, you know, real you know, animals are talking, but you know, it's there's a bit of real. Well, it's kind of it's a gag. It's kind of when it, when the film starts to include gags within its language. Which is interesting that that's the point where we're doing that, where, the, where this kind of um, Twitter betting is kind of happening. But, uh, but I think it's very, you know, fair to say that, develop, I mean, it's communicating that the, you know, the aim of adolescence is to mate, you know. And I, I think we see that coded language then with Bambi and Feline, that there's kind of that, you know, music and then, it, you know, it fades away and then... Um, we kind of see them the next morning, which is a very kind of common, I guess, a trope in film that communicates that there's been some hanky-panky. Well, it's, there's in a way, the three animals have three very different kind of courtship moments than that Flowers is very kind of awkward and cute and lots of giggling and lots of kind of furtive looks. And then Thumper has the much more direct, um, heated, uh, lustful interaction. And then Bambi and Feline is the sweeping... Hollywood romance, that they get the song and they get to, you know, ride across landscapes and be in silhouette against a sunset. Um, yeah, it's kind of like you, you're given three very different uh, stereotypes for what we assume courtship to be. And, and I guess it's also because we've seen Feline earlier, so it, we were a bit more invested into into that, that relationship uh, for sure. And I think, and also I guess the battle then for Feline you know, there's kind of, and there's, it's quite aggressive The when that kind of other stag is kind of taking Feline away. There's a real communication of kind of aggression there that, um, yeah, we obviously are really invested in, in Bambi kind of winning, winning that fight. And then Bambi's kind of put in the position of having to be the saviour in a way, not in like the sweeping sense of he has to save everybody in the forest, but he has to take the responsibility of having to save Feline. How does he fare in his transition from kind of the adolescent lack of responsibility to having to take that responsibility and move it towards adulthood? Look, I think it's unfortunate that this film, like so many, kind of communicates that the idea of growth for men is to show kind of you know, aggression and the end and that that's how you become a man by winning women through aggression or by showing your aggression and becoming the leader. You know, it's, it's obviously got a real sensibility of that, but you know, it's from the 40, you know, we can't expect it to have, you know, feminist politics, I guess. But, um, but I think it, you know, it would be, you know, it, it would be ideal if there was other communications of ways for men to, to, you know, develop that that aren't just grounded in in aggression and um and you know kind of violence really. Why do you think that men that that seems to be where men 
a lead towards there a bit like either as with their ideal of the per- the way a man is supposed to behave or as the perfect response to any kind of emotional situation. Well, I think just because of movies like that, you know, it's because of the way we, you know, nurtured to believe that through our environment and through, through what we've seen our parents, through what we see in film, through what we see that there's, you know, there's not a lot of men in, in power positions that don't exude that kind of, kind of masculine aggressive energy you know that that um that what we see we don't see a lot of kind of vulnerable emotional men portrayed as leaders or powerful kind of and i think you know when that's you know you can't be what you can't see you know so i don't think there's much opportunity for for people growing up to to see those models of of vulnerability leading to to power or lead, leading to development, we, we, you know, we just communicated that um, you should be physic, you know, that men should use their physicality um, and um, and that aggression to 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 get power. And it is it is interesting that Bambi kind of loses his personality the minute he has to become physically imposing in the film. That from the moment he meets, for, like he has the more romantic moment with Feline, but as soon as he has to fight for her or save her. He barely says a word for the rest of the film. And in fact, when we have the moment at the end where um, Feline has the twins, Bambi is depicted watching from a high place by him, like at first with the great prince and then by himself, which is a beautiful uh, image of nature and image of, the, of, of you know, animals within the natural world. But it kind of weirdly robs him of his resonance as a character. It's harder to connect with Bambi at the end of this film as much as it is for the first, like, three quarters of the film. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, as you said, it's kind of robs um, him of that um, that vulnerability, that, um, then that emotionality, and, you know, I think this is the, this is the outcome. And, you know, we've, you, I find this, you know, in my work as a psych and, and you know, research where you see that the, the cost of kind of, extreme masculinity and the, the cost of kind of patriarchy and the, the cost of this kind of expectation on men to be aggressive and to not show emotion that has a cost for men as well that they you know have to perform this masculinity where underneath you know like and i know this is psychologist with many male clients who on the outside are kind of showing that aggression and and showing that kind of that masculine kind of ideal but underneath are actually feeling guilt for that aggression are feeling guilt for for the way they are performing but they they just feel like that's what's expected and that's the place that they've got themselves into so and i think this you know kind of if we look at you know bamboo with that lens you know you can kind of see that that once that masculinity has to be performed you know that is at a cost of some of that that emotional kind of vulnerability that that is so important how much does the death of his mother inform his decisions or inform how it is that he look the 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 man essentially that he becomes well i mean there's a loss of you know often mothers can you know that can be a nurturing that vulnerable nurturing quality can continue to be communicated and modeled and obviously bambi loses that at a young age so you know i guess the idea there would be if you know, mum could had stayed around. Um, that that we, you know, there could have been someone there to to say, "Hey, Bambi, you know, you don't have to just be 
you know, you don't have to just be aggressive. Um, uh, that's not the only way to be. And, um, yeah, but I guess without that voice around, Bambi's just sort of, you know, expected to perform in a particular way. Um, and, and that's and that's what performing masculinity looks like. And the lack of friends. I mean, the most one of the most devastating moments, I think, in the film is when he's being led away by the Great Prince of the Forest and he stops and he turns back. He looks back to, I guess, you know, in a metaphorical sense, back to his childhood and his childhood friends and the world that he grew up in. And there is a, you do feel it's an extra level of devastation with him having to, after his mother's died, because he's going off with this stoic, unemotional male presence that's barely existed in his life. It's only like the, the most his contact he's had is it walked by and looked at him once and that that's going to be his caregiver and the person that kind of leads him through in his understanding of how to deal with his mother's grief, how to deal with the loss of his childhood and how to deal with moving towards adulthood. Um, it's a deeply unsettling transition. And I think one that is also unsettling is because of, I guess, the depiction of man in this as well. You know, that man is referred to, uh, there's a sense of a masculine man and, it, you know, that is the one that, you know, is holding the gun, that is the one that, that has kind of killed Bambi's mother. There, You know, there's that real sense that that man is is not a positive influence on on anything, you know, in this film. And so I think that undercurrents any sort of, um, connection or kind of understanding you have of of anything masculine in this film is that presence of of the absent man. How important do you think it is that fact, the fact that we never see man at all? He's never depicted in any physical form in the film. In fact, the only real mark we have for him is the three-note ascending theme in the score and then the sound of a gunshot. Um, how important is it to the film that he's not there? I think it would have, we're so in the world of the animals that it would have been a strangely kind of difficult thing, I think, to process what, like what that man would have, just what the animation would have looked like to depict that man would have, would have been a jarring kind of thing, I think, when we're so invested in, in the animal world. And I think, I think Disney, you know, films often, you know, we are, there's a world that's created that we are invested in. Um, and it's not real. Um, whereas I think, and so I think man would have made us kind of maybe, you know, being jarring to kind of have to try and get out of this world or because, you know, man is suddenly being presented. But I think, you know, just like with the, the, the death, you know, the shot that the, the absence of the character, you know, allows us to put into that space, um, the most kind of, terrible kind of looking kind of horrible kind of man um which i think is why again it's effective and then it metaphorically can become whatever we place in the role of man whatever it is that we see as our adversary or our threat like it becomes he becomes almost mythical by his lack of of actual physical presence within the film it's kind of the point it's funny for a film that so uh specifically places itself within the natural world and like aims for this certain degree of realism it's the presence of man even just the fact that we only refer to him as man like even when you look at like any re writings about the film it's always with a capital m he's like this this singular presence it's almost the point where the film actually engages in mythology it's like he's the Minotaur at the centre of um, the maze or um, he's 
a gorgon or something like he's he's larger than life, greater than us, impossible to define, kind of primal, primordial, elemental, and all because we never see him. If we we're given even a shadow of this figure, it would kind of reduce his impact on the animals, on us, but also our ability to kind of feed ourselves into the film even more so. I mean, Bambi, for most of the film, is such a great cipher for, for us, as are all the animals, um, and that having man as a, like a, a, a non-present figure just kind of amplifies our ability to place our own fears into the film. Absolutely. And it's kind of the first, you know, I think about the the sense of, like fire and, you know, there's all this man kind of created stuff that's such an evil force in this film that, that you kind of can, you sense it and you can feel it without, without having to see it. Um, and I, I just, you know, I, I think about, you know, what this is in the 40s, like to see animals talking. I, I wonder what impression it would have had on people you know, I wonder if like the the sale of venison really kind of plummeted during when Baby was released, like whether people started thinking about hunting and the negative impact that has on on animals. You know, that seems like a weird thing to say, but but whether there was a, this personification of these of these animals made people think about hunting or made people, you know, is is watching this film something that did did make people think about the impact these things are having on animals in a in a different way. And the the absence of man obviously allows allows us to kind of do that. The history of Disney animation is dominated by and defined by men. The great figures and legends are, with very few examples, all male. And this is due to the early belief that animation was a man's profession. Women were restricted almost entirely to ink and paint, perhaps the lower levels of the story or in between the departments, but for the first few decades, never animation. During Bambi, animator Retta Scott broke through the bias to become the first credited female animator at Walt Disney Productions. Retta Scott was born in Washington State in 1916, and after graduating in 1934, received two scholarships to further her art studies. Her second scholarship allowed her to study at the Chouinard Institute in Los Angeles, and much of her practice was focused on studying and sketching animals. The Disney studio had a strong connection with Chouinard, their faculty staff regularly lecturing and teaching at the studio, and as she was graduating, Scott was encouraged to apply for a job there. She was initially uninterested, but the Institute's director, Vern Caldwell, recommended her for work on Bambi. Scott joined the studio's story department in 1938, developing storyboards of sequences involving young Bambi and his mother. She also worked on a sequence where Faleen is attacked by a group of hunting dogs, and it was these drawings that caught the attention of Walt and the animation team. They were shocked that she had captured animalistic ferocity with such skill, and Walt assigned her to animate the sequence herself. No woman had ever worked as an animator at the studio before, and Scott had very little experience in the form. But under the guidance of director David Hand and the mentorship of Eric Larson, she began work on the sequence. Many of the male animators did not expect Scott to last long, but not only did she complete the sequence on time, it was remarkable work, better than some of her peers. Scott became the first woman credited as an animator on a Disney production. But despite this remarkable achievement, this did not shift perceptions in the industry about the role of women. As well as Bambi, she contributed to story development on Fantasia, Dumbo and The Wind in the Willows, but was momentarily laid off following the strike. 
She retired from the studio in 1946 and later did freelance work as an illustrator as well as a brief return to animation on Martin Rosen's The Plague Dogs. Retta Scott died in 1990, and in 2000, the Walt Disney Company posthumously recognised her as a Disney legend. Her work as an animator was a pioneering moment in the history of the medium, opening the doors for the women to follow her, but she is only one of a few women to be frequently acknowledged in the story of Walt Disney Animation. Why do you think it is that Bambi has endured as a classic? Why do we think of this film as a classic? Why do we still reference it, talk about it? Why is it still important? Well, I mean, I think it's it's timeless in the sense that it's not depicting, as you, you know, men is absent. You know, it's not depicting anything of the real world. So it so it remains sort of timeless. Um, and I think the just the animation, you know, I just think about the beauty and the that's the just as an artistic skill and just as as an art form, you know. I think this holds up um, as such a such a incredible kind of display of of just artistic talent. And this and the that's the score. I I just think is such. It's just holds up because it. You know, I think what's been interesting is you know so much what we talked about has kind of been about the absence. We talk about the absence of man and the absence of the death and the absence. Um, that, and I think it because we're able to put into these characters and into those absences so much of what's important to us and so much of our own emotion and so much of our own connection that I think, you know, that that in its timelessness, it, it allows us to really just put into this film so many kind of emotional, personal kind of experiences that that uh, that keep it you know keep it going it's still a little bit mind-blowing that they made that they had the the guts to make a film like this and like it's you know because you've got to think about the fact of we now look you know we've had this film for you know almost a century now but when this film was released it was the fifth feature-length animated film ever made the only reference points they had for other animated features really were snow white pinocchio and Dumbo. Fantasia's, you know, an experiment all on its own, and it kind of doesn't really count in comparison to this. But when your only reference points are those three to go, Snow White is a fairy tale, it's told in the manner of a fairy tale with some, you know, pretty sophisticated elements, and you get to Pinocchio, which is this densely moral, um, breathtaking, technically overwhelming epic. And then you have Dumbo, which is simple, clean, clear, uh, and kind of surprisingly adult, like in a way that's the most adult out of any of the early films, to then come to Bambi where you're willing to take on the concept of mortality itself, but also to deny the audience of gags, to deny the audience of, you know, big musical numbers. It's not an overly, like, colours are based entirely on what will reflect the natural world. It's also slightly impressionistic at points, which is not a thing that animation was doing quite yet. Maybe that's, like, the only link you can put it to is maybe some sequences in Fantasia that they assumed the audience was going to go along with this, that the medium, which was not even a decade old, really, of feature animation, was not even a decade old, that they thought that the audience was going to be able to buy this and that they were going to be able to accept things like the death of a main character. I mean, there was one of the considerations they had with making Snow White was they said, can we expect an audience to feel... uh, 
danger for a character? Can we f- expect them to see Snow White and be worried for her when she's being approached by the witch? That's 37. And then you get to 42 and it's, we're going to expect the audience to have to see the death of the main character's mother. Like to actually, and to not just kind of let it be a cartoon moment, which would just kind of fly over, which into a certain degree, even something as um, sophisticated as the Lion King, to a certain degree kind of doesn't go as hard on the death as Bambi does. But to think that the, for the, that the audience back in 42 was like, we're going to, we're expecting you to expect to accept this. It's really bold. Even by today's standards, it's still kind of ballsy that they even att- attempted to do this. Absolutely. Because so much of the like, last half of the film is not really enjoyable. You know, it's not like kind of like the, you know, I sort of relate, this might be a strange comparison, but to kind of broke back mountain a little bit in its sweeping kind of landscape, beautiful kind of beginning. And then there's kind of this burgeoning kind of, there's so much beauty in the start of the film. And then it's just really kind of heart wrenching kind of for the rest of it. And, you know, and I think this, you know, that, that last, the last half of this is just, you know, it's it's kind of fight after, you know, aggressive stag energy to fire to, like, death to, you know. And, and even at the end, there's a strange, I guess, because I watch this now thinking of kind of, you know, the performance of masculinity as a, as a bad thing. But when, when Bambi kind of, the you know, that last shot of, like, standing on the rock, that as if, you know, taking on that, that role and being completely separate from his, children and and kind of what it kind of feels a little bit like oh am i really kind of happy for this i don't i don't know and like it's a yeah there's not a kind of lot of light joyfulness in that i feel like that's taken that birth is kind of there's a bit of light joyfulness but then there's something about him being this kind of like absent father almost that um that kind of takes that away from me and yet you're still swept up in it like even like when it gets to the ending it's just so it's such an overwhelming experience. The comp, like the the collision of the beautiful of of the visuals and the music, um, and the narrative. After I rewatched it the first time in prepping prepping for this, um, the only word I think way I could describe the film was it was like sta- watching Bambi is like standing in a cathedral. It's just the it's such a titanic work of art. Like it's just so enormous that even with the things that it lacks, you kind of leave it exhausted. Uh, emotionally, um, you know, em- emotionally and mentally drained, just from how uh, how much of a journey it has taken you on, and how impossible it is not to be impressed by it as a technical achievement. Yeah, it's as a, as an art form and artwork. You know, it's it's you know, however you judge, you know, what makes successful art. But somewhere along the way, I think you have to say it's something that evokes emotion, um, and I think this does that. You know. On so many levels, as I was saying, to rewatch it, I was having emotional reactions as I was kind of remembering moments in childhood where I'd seen that scene or said those words. Or, and I just think that speaks to the beauty of of this film to be able to like just create so much emotion that just stays with you through its music and through through it through its art. That um, that it's just a, a phenomenal achievement. For most of its production, Walt Disney had allowed Bambi to move at a steady pace, giving time for experimentation and refinement. By the summer of 1941, though, he realised that the results were not coming in fast enough. 
While other productions would produce on average around 10 feet of film a day, the animators on Bambi were producing little more than 6 inches. With the costs mounting, Disney accelerated production, cutting sequences and ideas at a pace that startled the staff. There was already unease after the strike, and this sudden acceleration further exacerbated many of the artists, who considered their work on the film compromised. Walt was convinced that Bambi would be the major hit the studio desperately needed. By the summer of 1942, feature film production funding had been completely exhausted, and the studio was surviving almost entirely on the US government contracts they had secured with America entering the Second World War. Bambi premiered on August 13, 1942, to mostly mixed reviews. After such an enormous push towards realism, it was that very realism that many critics took issue with, put off by the lack of fantasy elements that had, for them, become the Disney feature trademark. Mr. Disney seems intent on moving from art to artiness, wrote the New York Times the day after the premiere. For in trying to achieve a real-life naturalism as the camera does, Mr. Disney is faced with the necessity of meeting those standards. And if he does, why have cartoons at all? One cannot combine naturalism with cartoon fantasy. Because Bambi and his mother are naturalistically conceived, the fact that they speak like people becomes wildly incongruous. Because the stags are similarly drawn, their stiff leg leaps across the meadow merely throw into relief the failure of pen and brush to capture the fluent movement of real photography. A waterfall that does not ripple with complete realism tears apart the illusion of a naturalistically contrived forest. There were also protests against the film from hunters in the US. In the 1942 edition of Outdoor Life, editor Raymond Brown wrote that the film was the worst insult ever offered in any form to American sportsmen. The film also followed in the footsteps of Pinocchio and Fantasia by underperforming at the box office. Blame was once again placed on restricted access to European markets, but there was also mutterings that audiences had started to lose interest in Disney animation, dismissing the film as the same as usual. The magic spark that Disney had captured in 1937 appeared to be fading. In time though, the fortunes of the film began to shift. With each subsequent re-release, it grew in popularity, both critically and financially. Today, Bambi is regarded as one of the greatest animated films ever made, and a high benchmark for the medium. When the American Film Institute released their 10 Top 10, the 10 best films in the 10 classic American genres, Bambi placed third in the animation Top 10, behind Pinocchio in number 2, and Snow White in number 1. Perhaps its most unusual honour was being included by time in a list of the top 25 horror films of all time. In the pursuit of realism in animation, few films have matched the remarkable artistic brilliance of Bambi. It endures, though, as a powerful coming-of-age story, one that grapples with the complexities of life and death through the eyes of a child, a story that has lost none of its magic or its power. Now, to finish up our conversation, I have a question. That is the question I ask at the end of every episode um, uh, for every guest. And I have a feeling either you're going to have an immediate answer to this or you're going to find this a torturous question. Do you have a favourite Disney film? <laughs> uh, I, 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 it is Beauty and the Beast. I've, I've thought about this question before. It's something that I... And there is... there just and, I, and it's an absolute even balance of 
memory, childhood memories attached to that film for me, uh, as it is just, just the music and, you know, the, just, it's just, it's just, I, all those songs are just so near and dear to me. Um, and I don't, I, I don't think I will ever, you know, I walk around in the morning and I still feel like I'm Bell walking through a village. Like, it's, 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 <laughs> like when people say hello to me, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Like, it's such an, um, uh, yeah. So I, I guess it's, I think you said it's your favourite as well, right? So I guess I'm in good company. Thank you for being the very first person to say Beauty and the Beast because I'm, you know, five or six episodes into the singer, no one said it. And I was like, damn. Who's going to be in my camp? No, I am in that very camp camp. I am I'm definitely, I'm definitely there with you. I did have one last question, um, and it's possibly a bit of a complex or a bit of an abstract question. As a psychologist, why do you think Disney has a persistence with us? Why do you think Disney has become such an indelible part of our collective consciousness? I think, it, oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's connection to childhood. I mean, any... Anything that has an impact on you in childhood will stay with you in ways you don't even realize as an adult. You know, you know, we study attachment, you know, how you attach the, the kind of relationship and attachment you have with your parents really is correlated to the kind of relationships you have later in your life. They're, and trauma in childhood, you know, obviously has such an impact in later in life. They're, so anything that is connected to your childhood um, is is going to stay with you and have a huge impact on you. And I think you know, Disney is often introduced at that time and it just ticks, you know, as I said before that, but it's a master manipulator. It ticks every box you would want to tick if you were trying to create something that children would love. You know, it's colours and music and animals and cute things and, like, it's just, it's all there. But I think there is... From the beginning, I think Disney has respected animation as not just for children. You know, that there there's, continues to be important. I think the themes and the stories told through Disney are obviously kind of important kind of moral tales and, and important um, really, you know, stories that, that kind of live on. Um, but it, it's, it's almost like telling really important, I guess, Adult stories are really important kind of morals, but with this absolutely beautiful kind of um, veneer of, of, of music and colours that I think you kind of enjoyed at the time, but then maybe I think certainly as a kid, some of those lessons stick with you. And, um, and also the songs are just really catchy. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. That helps enormously, yes. The, end, the endlessly wonderful songs, yes. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's, a world, it's a world like it's fantasy, you know. It's Who doesn't want to be swept away, especially at times of like now, that like any, you know, who doesn't want to be swept away in a, in a you know, seemingly better world? And uh, I think Disney feels like it's another, it's a, it's a world um, and uh, that we all want to kind of escape to when we can. Well, Chris, thank you so much for um, giving us your time and chatting to us and sharing your insights and your knowledge. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. No worries. It was so lovely to, to chat Disney with you. The period of 1937 to 1942 
is often referred to as the golden age of Disney animation, encompassing the release of the Big Five, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi. Each film is distinct from the other, but collectively, they represent one of the most remarkable artistic developments in the history of cinema, a leap in technical, artistic, and thematic sophistication that still has the capacity to leave us speechless. It isn't an exaggeration that each film is, even with their flaws, a masterpiece, and that both animation and cinema itself are indebted to them. It was a period of intense experimentation, daring, and instinct. Great artists on every level pushing themselves further than they could have imagined. Led by a mad genius so hell-bent on perfection and adoration that he was willing to do anything to attain them, regardless of the personal or financial cost. Walt Disney was delivering these classics concurrently with some of the most important American films. Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Casablanca, The Great Dictator, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Citizen Kane. And yet they feel like films beyond time, beyond place, primal and personal and epic. By the time Bambi was released though, that golden age had come to a crashing end. The financial struggles at the studio had become too great, and feature film animation was no longer viable. They couldn't afford the same excess of time and resources, not without putting the company and its employees at a financial risk they may never recover from. When faced with adversity though, art evolves, and amongst the box office failures, Dumbo was an anomaly, a cost-effective film that had made a significant profit. In order to recover, Walt Disney Productions would have to once again go back to basics, streamline their films, and respond more directly to their country and the world at large. What followed Bambi was perhaps the most unusual period in the history of Disney animation, a series of films mostly forgotten by the general public, but charting a new evolution in what Disney animation could be, moving towards a new era of beloved classic films. The next six films, six package films, would be a kind of reset, and their release from 1943 to 1949 would be known as the wartime era of Disney animation. On the next episode of Ink and Paint. There are a lot of, like, let's see that again in reverse, or they would reverse the animation a yeah. lot. Every time that happens, I go, that's the animators being lazy. They're just playing that <laughs> bit backwards. I'm joined by comedy writer and creator of Lessons with Lewis, Joven Caro, to look at the first two package films, the South American-inspired Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros. Thanks again to Chris Cheers for joining me on this episode. You can find out more about Chris's psychology practice at chrischeers.com and on Instagram at Chris Cheers Psychology. And thank you to all of our guests as we've looked at the golden age of Disney animation. Nicholas Collar on the early Disney shorts, Emma Valente on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Sam Strong on Pinocchio, Ashley Clapp on Fantasia, Dr. Carmenita Higginbotham on Dumbo, and Chris Cheers on Bambi. And Todd Fuller on our first in-betweener on the animation process. Thank you for sharing your insight and enthusiasm for these important works of 20th century art. Now that we've come to the end of this first era of Disney animation, I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped get Ink and Paint off to such a tremendous start. To Nicholas Pirinakis for his terrific artwork, to Lily Meek who paints out gorgeous episode artwork every fortnight, and to Sam Porter for his brilliant original music, which he both composes and performs. Thank you to Charlie David Page, the editor at Switch, for supporting and promoting the podcast 
and for providing great encouragement to make it the best it can be. Enormous thanks to producer, editor, and collaborator Alex Amster for crafting such beautiful episodes and coming up with constantly exciting, always bold ideas for how to make Ink and Paint even better. And lastly, thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you for supporting our crazy podcasting venture. Hopefully you're enjoying listening along as much as we're enjoying making it. Over the next three episodes, we'll be covering the films from the wartime era, as well as our next episode on the South American good neighbor film Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. We'll also have an episode on the three package films Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free, and Melody Time, and one on the final package film, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And in our in-betweeners, we'll continue to look at the wider history of Walt Disney and Walt Disney Productions. If you're following along, you can find all of the feature films in the wartime era on Disney+, Plus, except for Make My Music, which you can buy or rent on Google Play or YouTube. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at inkandpaint.com.au for more information about the making of Bambi and all the films from our previous episodes, including concept art, animation sketches, and the history of the films on home video. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Hit us up with your comments, questions, and even memories of your favourite Disney films, and we'll be sure to share them on our upcoming episodes. You can email daniel at incompaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. We release new episodes every fortnight, as well as bonus in-betweeners every now and then. So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform, and don't forget to tell your friends. Ink and Paint was created, hosted, and written by myself, Daniel Lamon and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Original music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Piranakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch, makethetheswitch.com.au. Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics. 